Rude Awakenings, Chapter 9, read by Achan Suchito and Nick Scott. Our two pilgrims, weary from long days walking through the heat of India, living on alms food and sleeping out, have arrived at the Buddhist holy site of Vaishali. Chapter 9 The Deathless Drum Achan Suchito Vishali was the site of many of the Buddha's teachings and where, at the Chapala Shrine, he had determined to let his life finish. They say the earth quaked. The accounts say that he would have held on to his life force until the end of the eon, if requested, but the faithful Ananda missed the chance. Here the Buddha, having just recovered from a severe illness, eighty years old and worn, said that he would pass away after three months. Ripe am I in years, my lifespans determined. Now I go from you, having made myself my refuge. Bhikkhus, be untiring, mindful, disciplined, guarding your minds with well-collected thought. He who, tireless, keeps to Dhamma and Vinaya, leaving birth behind, will put an end to Dukkha. To us, Vaishali seemed like a good place for a rest, and for the all-night meditation vigil of the full moon of December. We reckoned on needing a day or so to regenerate some energy for the vigil. Therefore, we'd push the pace a little to get there a couple of days before the full moon. Nick had the information that the only Vihara in Vaishali was a temple of the Nipponzamyohyoji sect. Being Japanese, it was bound to be quiet and clean. The last miles on the road seemed endless. We had been going vigorously with only brief pauses for about eleven hours since Mr. Singh's protracted breakfast. We hadn't even stopped for food. The sun had long gone down and the monotonous road and the rhythm of walking had merged into a hologram of fatigue in which the mind lost the ability to measure time or distance. There was just the pounding of the road and the mantra leading onward like some unstoppable dirge. We were so numb and Vaishali so small that we might have stomped past it in the dark but for a rectangular expanse of dark water wherein blazed the great moon and the small white temple was right beside it, white and cool and still. A neat notice on its gate, and inside an immaculate shrine with great glowing Buddhas and a photo of the founder of the Nipponzen Myohyoji, Reverend Nichidatsu Fuji, on the shrine. A broad smile beamed over his hands, joined in Anjali to greet us. Fluffy white eyebrows danced like cirrus clouds above a face shining with well-being. 
The drum, that played a central part in their ritual, stood to one side of the shrine. We paid our respects and waited for the host. At the time of the Buddha, Vishali was the capital of the Lichavi Republic, which, together with the Republic of the Videhas, made up the Vajian Confederacy. They say that the Buddha was impressed with Vaishali. It was a beautiful spot, and the people who lived there had a form of government that was democratic by nature, being made up of leaders elected from the aristocratic class. It probably reminded him of his homeland, which was ruled in a similar way. However, although the Buddha had no illusions about the pride and stubbornness of his own people, he had nothing but praise for the Lichavis. Unlike his own people, they had offered him hospitality at the numerous shrines in their republic and had taken to heart his advice on statecraft. Once, when I was at the Sanandada shrine in Vaishali, I taught the Vajians these seven principles for preventing decline, and as long as they keep to these seven principles, as long as these principles remain in force, the Vajians may be expected to prosper and not decline. The Buddha also directly related the seven principles to the harmonious functioning of the spiritual fraternity. Briefly stated, the advice was the following. To meet frequently, to meet in harmony, carry out business in harmony and depart in harmony to refrain from authorising what had not been authorised and not to abolish what had been authorised, to honour and respect the elders and listen to their advice, to maintain good conduct with regard to women, to honour and respect their holy places and to look after spiritual sages. These seven principles, the Buddha assured the chief minister of Magadha, would make the Vajians impossible to defeat, should Ajatasattu, the aggressive king of Magadha, wage war on them. For the Sangha, the Buddha modified these principles to include exhortations to live simply in the forest, to sustain mindfulness, to avoid getting caught up in building projects, to avoid too much social chit-chat, to share whatever one had with fellow summoners, and so on. With this way of living, the Buddha reminded his disciples, the Sangha might be expected to prosper and not to decline. With these principles established and the many teachings he had given, the Buddha felt that he could pass away with encouragement to his disciples to live as lanterns unto yourselves with no one else as your refuge, with the Dhamma as your lantern and refuge, with no other refuge. Soon after the Buddha's demise, the Vajians were conquered by Jatasattu. Paying heed to the Buddha's words to them, the king employed a strategy of infiltrating agents who stirred up discord amongst the Lichavis. With the harmony gone, they were easy prey. However, the Sangha is still around, at least in an outward form. 
The Vinaya's requirement that the Sangha discusses its business in assembly and makes its decisions by unanimous consent has held it together. There are also large-scale meetings. A hundred years or so after the death of the Buddha, a Sangha council met at Vaishali to come to an agreement over some matters of discipline, and this, which has subsequently been called the Second Buddhist Council, continued a tradition of large-scale meetings on such matters that has gone on ever since. The Sixth Council was in 1954. So, despite the fact that gaining support from established secular powers throughout Asia has rendered the Sangha vulnerable to the corruptions of wealth and power, wherever there is a teaching and a training in accordance with the seven principles, a Sangha community manifests in an authentic way. The Vinaya training was something I was particularly conscious of and grateful for, having spent the first couple of years as a bhikkhu with very little understanding of Sangha life. Ajahn Sumedho, whom I subsequently met by chance in northern Thailand, had, on the other hand, received a superb spiritual education from the forest master, Venerable Ajahn Chah, and it showed in terms of patience, kindness, and the ability to let go. Things much easier said than done. Our paths had crossed the game when I returned to England and found him carrying out the traditional bhikkhu training in a townhouse in London. Strangely enough, the Vinaya made even more sense there, outside of a Buddhist culture. If you don't fully understand the aims of the training, life as a bhikkhu seems a meaningless anachronism. You lose perspective on what the symbol of the renunciant stands for and brings into the world. Most bhikkhus who have not cultivated the discipline reflectively go off the rails or disrobe when coming to the West. I got pretty close myself. If it had not been for Ajahn Sumedho's example, I would never have developed the scope of my practice beyond that of meditation exercises. But the Buddha taught a complete way of life. The Vinaya's steady light had made it possible to live this uncertain life as a pilgrimage. Now it was guiding us around the Buddha's land. The scrupulousness, the renunciation and the fellowship that it engendered were the reason and the means whereby I came to be here. Vinaya was a way of enhancing beautiful qualities, care of the sick, respect for the elders, support of lay followers, the honour of serving the Dhamma. The Sangha at Vaishali was currently Reverend Reiji Nakazotu and an Indian attendant. The Japanese monks' English were not great, but about as good as ours was in our evening brain-dead state. Polite silences and gestures and tea seemed very pleasant. He'd received my letter from Lumbini. It seemed that people did not normally stay at the temple, but as I was a monk... Unfortunately, the temple was about to undertake a seven-day regime of refraining from eating and drinking, so there will be no food as of tomorrow. According to Japanese tradition, the Buddha was enlightened on December 8th, and so they fast during the immediately preceding week. Well, that was great timing on our part. Not even water. No water, he explained but on the fourth day they took some noodle mush 
and green tea to clean out the system. And the regime would include continual drumming and mantra recitation from an hour before dawn until an hour after sunset. Of course, we were not obliged to join in. But next morning we found that joining in was hardly a matter of choice. The shrine room of the tiny temple was on the other side of the wall from our beds. Drumming being the support for the principal practice of Nibonzan Myohyoji, the drum was huge and attended with all the fervour it takes to sustain a seven-day fast or a thousand-mile peace pilgrimage, also a major part of their practice, or to construct beautiful peace pagodas in places throughout the world, all done with total self-sacrificing commitment. People pointed askance to the huge scars that many of the monks bore as a result of strapping bundles of incense to their arms, setting fire to them, and sustaining the burning of their own flesh by fanning the glowing jostics. This, apparently, was an act of penance or of offering their lives to the Buddha. Not what the Buddha taught, people say, but the drum and the mantra override that. And when your head is a few feet away from it, there's not a lot of room for thought. The skin vibrates with the rhythm, whether the thinking joins in or not. According to Nishiren, the monk teacher established this mantra practice in 13th century Japan, Nam-myo-hyo-renge-kyo, homage to the white lotus of the good law, is the heart of the Buddha's teaching. You can forget the rest. Drumming certainly makes forgetting very easy. During our stay in Vaishali, Buddhist activity could be summed up as the dawn breaking with the mantra and the sun setting to the pounding of the drum. For the first day, Activity of any kind was minimal. We lay there, being pounded for a few hours until Nick dredged up the motivation to go and search for food. He returned some hours later, having had to sit down and rest every hundred yards or so with snacks that he had brought in the nearby market. I don't remember the rest of the day, except that, as a gesture of harmony, we decided to join in the mantra sessions for the hour before dawn and the hour after sunset every day. It helped us maintain a fitting forgetfulness. The drummers were still going strong into their second day as we made it out of the temple to a chai shop down on the main road. The drumming, although resounding over the entire area, was less dominant there. 
and Indian life was meandering along, oblivious to the spiritual energy that was relentlessly resounding. There was a tourist information office with old posters on the wall, and a few brochures about Varanasi and Uttar Pradesh. We'd seen that there was a museum on the other side of the tank, and we already had a map showing the site of an ancient stupa. The museum was closed, and we didn't have the energy to get out to the stupa. Nick ambled off to survey a mound. I slowly made it back to the temple to write a letter to the Sangra Damrawati. Until after sunset, salutations to the white lotus continued to pour forth. Nick Scott The afternoon of the second day, I wanted to write some letters home. The constant drumming made it impossible in the temple. It was hard even to think, let alone compose a letter. So I went off to find somewhere quiet and out of the way. The mound I headed for had one of the small blue enamelled signs that say in English and Hindi that the site is of archaeological importance and is not to be damaged. The small sign seemed a very inadequate defence against the forces of destruction. It was dwarfed by the large flat mound, and so worn that most of the Hindi part could not be made out. Not that many of the local people would have been able to read it anyhow. Bihar has the lowest literacy rate in India. The mound was covered with archaeological excavations. Most of them were old, and the exposed, dull orange brickwork was beginning to crumble away. A few were apparently still in progress, with fencing around them, though no one was to be seen working. In the distant corner, a small group of trees sheltered a building that looked like an abandoned temple. Built of brick, it had a large wooden door covered with carvings, so worn that I took it at first to be simply rough wood. I sat down in the shade of these trees, looking out across the plain to the south and west. The mound was at most only twenty feet high, but in the Ganges plain that is ten feet above most anything else, and the views were excellent. It was a great place, but I still couldn't write. I felt really lethargic and uninterested in anything that required the slightest effort. At the previous holy sites we'd been like this, but now it was much worse, and it was taking much longer to pass. Eventually, I got out a leaflet from Fishali's one-man tourist office. I reckoned I could at least manage to read that. There was little to it, just a title for each place of note with one line of information. He told me of a mound called Raja Vishal Kagar, which had once been the great assembly hall of the Vagians. It dawned on me that I was now sitting on the meeting hall of the oldest known democracy in the world. This was where 7,707 representatives of the Vagian Confederacy had met at the time of the Buddha to discuss the problems of the day. When the Confederacy fell to Magadha, the mound I was on became a palace the present name means House of Vishali's King, and finally a fortress. Last century, 
Sir Alexander Cunningham recorded towers on the four corners, but they were long gone by my visit, to make more houses in the local villages, I expect. Around the mound must once have been the city of the Lachavis. The ruins were probably still there, buried under 25 centuries of deposited silt. But there is so much history in India. The tourist leaflet, as well as describing the Buddhist remains, also mentioned that Vashali had been the birthplace of Lord Mahavira, the founder of the Jain religion, and the temple that I was sitting beside was in fact the tomb of a famous Sufi saint. It in turn was on a slightly higher part of the mound that had once been another Buddhist stupa. And this was just one place. There are so many ruins scattered about the Ganges plain. Sitting on that mound, looking out over the vast plain, I got my first real sense of the enormous weight of history that had passed there. For tens of thousands of years, people have been living there. Empires have come and gone. Invaders have conquered and been assimilated. Cultures have flourished and died. Each has built, and their buildings have crumbled, the remains slowly being buried in layers of silt. The present stark landscape, with only the occasional tree, contrasted so much with the description of Vishali left in the Buddhist scriptures. In that era, to the north of Vishali, lay the Mahavana, the Great Forest, which extended to the foothills of the Himalayas, covering much of the cultivated land we had spent the last month crossing. Vishali had room around it then, so that land need not be so intensely used. The scriptures described the city as being charming, with beds of flowers in her numerous gardens and groves. Vashali must have been really beautiful. Now the mound was just a piece of communal grazing land, and the locals were so crowded together, and mostly so poor, that all they could do was survive. On my way across the mound, I'd pass women out collecting grass for their animals. I had trouble at first making out what they were doing, as they were not using knives, but trowels. Then I realised that the grass was so closely cropped that the only way they could collect any was to scrape it up. So they were squatting, bent over, and scraping up the few small grass plants left while slowly making their way crab-like across the ground. The results of their efforts followed behind each of them, a small pile of grass on an open piece of cloth, which would eventually be wrapped up and carried home on their heads. Achan Suchito Nam Yong Hong Renge Kyo Nam Yong Hong Renge Kyo Wam 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 We were all sitting in the shrine room before the glowing Buddhas. It was not yet dawn on the third thumping day. The Japanese monk was at the big drum. The Indian, apparently training for the monkhood, 
was using a small handheld disc over which a skin was stretched. The mantra painted on the skins in beautiful Japanese calligraphy danced to the rhythmic pounding. You had to hand it to them, they weren't holding anything back. The drumsticks lunged into the skins as the mantra roared, rasping out of their throats time and time again. The pounding was in unison. The drawn-out moan of the mantra gripped now the Indian, now the Japanese, while the other sucked in air. Were they chanting for world peace or for enlightenment? Whatever the apparent purpose... It justified itself as a manifestation of single-mindedness and energy. Whether it led to transcendence, you'd have to find out for yourself. I found the implications of that resolve and the unreasoning energy behind it rather frightening. The car CVAC we had seen at Lucknow Station had that kind of energy in a less organised way. Then there were the suicide squads and martyrs who made a purpose into a cause. Human will has an alarming power. Nick joined in with the chanting, but to me it wasn't the kind of thing I could do without meaning. So I sat in my Theravada non-alignment, listening, feeling the energy and meditating on it. Meditation, wrote Most Reverend Fuji in one of the books around the temple, was a self-centred waste of time. The real practice was the mantra and the bringing forth of Buddha energy into the world. This was what would bring around world peace. The Reverend Master had undertaken incredible austerities, was greatly admired by Gandhi and had presided over an order that was responsible for the construction of dozens of peace pagodas throughout Japan, Europe, India, North America and Africa. However, My little Theravada mind sniffed that it still didn't seem like Buddhism to me. But to each his own. For us, December 2nd was the day of the full moon observance, the end of our first month on pilgrimage. I managed to rally my Theravada principles and strike out of the numbness to fare for arms in the next village, Chakram Das. It wasn't difficult to walk in the slow, composed manner prescribed by the training rules, Actually, it was quite pleasant to be gently wading through eddies of children. When I had made it to the end of the village and decided to give up, they beckoned me on to a house where a young man wearing western clothes came out to meet me. Ah, I understood. He was the one in the village who spoke the best English. Come into my house and I will put something into your pot. It was more than something. After tea and a long conversation, it was a whole meal, specially cooked and served on a stainless plated dish. Some of the advice to the Lichavis seemed to be in good working order. But in general, the picture was of decay. Like many educated Indians, he had no job, but had enough education to know of the appalling economic statistics of this part of the world. Eighty million people in Bihar with nearly half of that population below the poverty line, defined as the amount needed to buy food, giving 2,100 calories per day, was an example of the figures that occupied my host's mind. Having no equation other than one that materialism presented, he was in a more depressed state than the poorer villagers. 
It was good that my presence at least revitalised his dharma in terms of hospitality and presented a different way of measuring life. Tomorrow you must bring your friend. I will show you around the sights. I returned to the temple feeling rather pleased with this small boost for the practice of a summoner. Nick was also more invigorated and reckoned that, as tonight was our all-night meditation vigil, the intelligent thing would be to get an hour or so's rest. We moved out into the back yard to stretch out somewhere where a clump of bushes offered meagre shade and the drumbeat was less tangible than inside. It didn't work. That was as far as my Buddha energy could go. Another afternoon of being pounded left us with the vigour of a couple of aged teddy bears. So much for the all-night meditation. My stuffing was all out even before midnight, leaving me just enough wit to recognise that being slumped against the wall was no more of a vigil than lying on a bed. You could call that a direct realisation. At times, most Reverend Fuji's assessment of meditation practice, although not in accordance with the scriptures, summed up my attempts quite well. Nick Scott To get anywhere in Fashali, we had to walk around the tank. Big and oblong, the size of several football pitches, or fields, it had steps leading down into the water, and here and there a tree hanging over it. There were kingfishers, the pied kingfisher, with its striking black and white markings, a chequered flashing as it hovered above the water, beak pointing straight down, and the common kingfisher, the same one that's such a delight to see in England flying across the water a streak of metallic blue. Both could be quite mesmerising, and I'd often stop to watch one of them on my way. The tank was once the coronation tank for the kings of Fashali, and would then have been surrounded with important buildings. Now, on one side, there was just the Japanese temple, and on the other, modern-day India. The contrast between the two sides was as great as between Fashali now and its bygone greatness. The Japanese temple was a land of order, dynamic effort and cleanliness. On the other side, the small tea stall where we had our morning breakfast had a table covered in cracked plastic with flies crawling over it. The government museum next door was never open when we tried to visit and no one seemed to know when it would be. And the village beyond was overcrowded and poor, the dirt tracks lined with litter and excrement, the children in rags. In Fashali, my fatigue amplified just how bad this part of India seemed, and how different it was from its past. For surely, when Fashali was great, India must have been dynamic, orderly and clean too. Societies, like everything else, go in cycles. That which arises, passes away. There is a theory of societies which states that when young, they are expansive, militaristic and dynamic. There is room for development, 
and so they are socially fluid. Later, if they are successful, they reach a maturity of confidence with a flowering of the arts and religion. Their morality changes from conquest to sharing, and their influence is great. Then they go into decline as they become overcrowded and conservative. Socially they become rigid, and class or caste becomes important, as those with more of the limited resources protect it for their offspring. Societies may be temporarily revived with the imposition of another social structure, like communism or with India Islam, but they are really on their way down, because there is no new space for the society to expand into. That day, to my jaundiced view, all that made a lot of sense. At the time of Fishali's greatness, society was young and fluid. It was militaristic, but also open to new religious thought, such as the teachings of the Buddha. Social maturity could be seen to have started, for this part of India, with the time of Ashoka and his empire. The standard of the carving in such as the Ashokan columns is exquisite, and today seen as the peak of Indian art. That was when Buddhism flourished, and it was also when moral standards such as vegetarianism started. From then on, for several centuries, Indian social conventions, along with Buddhism, were exported throughout Asia. But then the society went into decline. In modern Bihar, it seemed to me, that we were looking at the very end of the cycle. The morning after our failed attempt at an all-night sitting, the drumming stopped. It was their rest day. We left them to it and went to visit an archaeological site a few miles away with the young man Ajahn Suchito had met the previous day. It was a pleasant enough walk along paths across the paddy fields, but I was tired and still looking at modern India with a jaundiced eye. On the far side of the tank was a small carpet factory. It was just a one-room building, the size of one of the houses, opening along its length onto the path and the tank. Above was a long, hand-painted red and white sign proclaiming the Mishwal Carpet Manufacturing Cooperative, or something to that effect. And inside were two long looms, intricate arrangements of wood and white string with men sitting behind them, two to each loom. They were working foot pedals that pulled the wall down through the loom, and with their hands they were pushing a long wooden shuttle back and forth, tightening the wall against a growing carpet. We stopped briefly to watch while our guide explained that the factory had been set up using a government grant designed to encourage carpet making in the region. I already knew that. I'd read how a campaign by Western charities was forcing the Indian government to do this. Carpet making was usually done in the cities by children bought for cash from poor parents in the backward regions of India, particularly from Bihar. And carpet making was not all the children were used for. The best looking children were sold to become prostitutes. Not much further along, we came to the archaeological remains at Kolhoa. Our guide found the Chokidar in charge of the site, 
a local wearing the usual worn khaki uniform, denoting the lowest class of Indian bureaucracy, which would reflect his caste. And we were shown round by the two of them, our guide asking questions in Hindi and then relaying the replies to us in English. There was a column that we were told postdated the other Ashokan columns we'd seen. It also postdated the flowering of the Indian arts, as it was a very poor imitation, shorter, squatter, with the lion on top looking more like a cloth replica stuffed with straw. There were also the excavated remains of several small Buddhist monasteries, oblong buildings, each with a central courtyard, with some dozen small monastic cells looking onto it. These were the first we had seen of the Viharas that give Bihar its name. Hundreds of others have been found, nearly all following the same simple design. These must have dated from the peak of Buddhism in northern India, when Bihar would have had the density of Buddhist monks they have today in Thailand and Burma. On the way back, we were brought to the house of a local landowner, or Taka, for our meal. Although his home was bigger and grander than the rest of the village, it was just a square block of concrete, no bigger than a small English house. And it was unfinished. Some doorways had fancy wooden doors, while others had nothing, and the concrete rendering on one of the walls was incomplete. Through our young friend, I found out from the slightly portly and middle-aged Taka that he was the village's largest landholder. This allowed him to have several lower-caste charmer families working for him, both in the fields and helping him around the house. It was they who served the meal. His total holding, however, was only 20 acres, the size of a typical field in England. I asked how much other Takas had, some are having nearly as much as this man, the lad replied, but most are having less. And the charmers? They have one acre, but this they are not owning. They must work for it. They were the ones in the small mud huts towards the edge of the village. Land holdings can be so small in the Ganges plain because the land is so productive. Our host told us he grew three crops a year. Rice planted with the rains, then wheat, which was being planted now, and then legumes, mostly lentils and chickpeas. He had several cows and water buffaloes. Most families only had one, and these were grazed on the stubble of the cut crops and fed with chopped fresh straw. No one kept chickens. As to good Hindus, eggs were seen as impure, not as bad as meat, but getting that way. Of course, the other reason they could live on such small amounts of land was that everyone lived so frugally. We were in the house of the biggest landowner in a big village. He probably had a radio and a television, but he didn't have a car, and there was little ostentation, just the fancy woodwork doors and the metal plates we ate from, instead of banana leaves. The workers had nothing but their mud hut their one cow and a few bangles for the wife. And the untouchables wouldn't even have had that. When I got back, I looked up some statistics. There were 843 people per square kilometre in the Fishali district of Bihar when we were there, 
not the highest in the Ganges plain, but then for Charlie is purely rural, and the others mostly have cities. A square kilometre is about 140 football pitches, or football fields, so there would have been on average six people living off the production from each one. Just imagine a countryside divided into plots the size of football pitches, on and on, in all directions, and six people standing on each one. No wonder we could never get away from people, and no wonder, with that bleak life, they found us such an interesting event. It is this population density that is the reason Bihar is so different today from what it once was. The fast tracts of forest left at the time of the Buddha were steadily cleared over the subsequent centuries as the population grew and for many centuries flourished. By the time the British came, however, this land was crowded and poor. The culture had become deeply conservative as the haves clung on to their position. And it is this resistance to change that is now the real problem in Bihar. India's attempts to limit its population have only been successful in states where there has been reform. There the birth rate has markedly declined and the life expectancy doubled. But there the land has been distributed more equally. Literacy is now high, healthcare widespread and women enjoy a much better status. In the northern states of the Ganges Plain and particularly in Bihar, where Indian society is thought to be the oldest, things have not changed, and population growth continues relentlessly. Later that day, having returned to the Japanese temple to rest, I pondered again the difference between Japanese and Indian societies. Was the contrast just that between the older and wealth of a young society against the chaos and poverty of an old one? It seemed to me there was something else, something attractive about the Indians. Their attitude to social conventions and rules. In the temple, as in Japan, individuals were subservient to rules. But out in India, it was the reverse. Every Indian asserted his unique individuality, and rules were simply ignored. This is how it proved to be at the museum, when at last we found it open with a sleeping caretaker sitting on a chair in the entrance. We climbed the steps and entered quietly so as not to disturb him. Facing us was the most sublime Buddha image, carved from black stone with a beautiful serenity to its features. How different the culture must have been to have produced that. It stood alone against the plain white wall facing everyone who entered. After it... The rest of the museum was a disappointment. As usual, the museum seemed to miss the point of the religious things it was exhibiting. The halls on either side of the entrance lobby were lined with archaeological remains, bits of different Buddhist ages, acts of devotion, now exhibited in ordered rows. We were the only people there, and we weren't there long. On the way out, I suggested to Ajahn Suchito that the serene Buddha was well worth a photograph, and he agreed. The problem was the notice at the entrance proclaiming, 
photographs are forbidden. Still, I reckoned if I used my little camera, no one would notice. So as we were taking one last look, I slipped the camera up to my eye and adjusted the focus. Excuse me, sir, photographs are not allowed. It was the museum caretaker we had passed on the way in. He was now standing behind us. I gave him my most pleading look. But this Buddha Rupa is so beautiful, and I would so like to have a photograph of it to show people in England. With a slight waggle of his head, he replied, How can I stop you? And with that, he walked back to his chair. The day the drums stopped was a sad day. When I could actually think more clearly, Vishali struck me with a kind of pathos. The fact that it had been a place where the Buddha gave some seminal teachings on the survival of his way in the future meant that I kept relating the city's decline to the decline of the triple gem in its birthplace. This was the place where the Buddha first summarized his teachings of sila, morality, samadhi, meditation, and banya, wisdom, the definition that is the bedrock of Buddhism. And here, worn out and encouraging his disciples to take responsibility for themselves, to practice the Dhamma for their own and others' welfare, was where he left his arms bowl and began the journey north to his death place. Now, the barest relics are left. The Buddha's bowl had occupied a hallowed shrine until the emperor Kanishka removed it in the 2nd century CE. According to the Sutta, the Lichavis obtained an eighth portion of the Buddha's remains and enshrined them in a stupa in Vaishali. The Sutta's account was confirmed by the pilgrim Xuanzang who visited when Vaishali's ruins were more extensive. He even added that the Emperor Ashoka had opened the stupa, taken out nine-tenths of the relics to put in other stupas, and left the tenth portion and rebuilt the stupa. Nobody made much of all that until the remnants of the stupa were discovered in 1958. In the heart of the rubble was a small soapstone reliquary containing burnt bone. The ruin itself, which we visited after the museum, consisted of an ancient earth core that had been enlarged with bricks on several occasions and showed signs of having been opened about 250 years after its construction. But now, even that reliquary had been taken away from Vaishali. According to the museum, the relics, along with anything of archaeological interest, were now in Patna Museum. All that remained here were a few lumps of stone delineating where the stupa had stood. It had held the enlightened one's remains for 2,000 years, and now it looked like the decayed molar in the jaw of something long since dead. In the falling dusk, I placed some of the offerings I brought from England into the empty heart of the stupa.
then circumambulated it with lit candles and incense. Tea with our host on his rest day was a pleasant relief for everybody. Nick and I talked to him about Buddhism in Britain and we were excited to hear that the relics from the Buddha's cremation, although not on show, could be seen if one obtained special permission from the director of the museum in Patna. Strangely enough, he had never got round to pursuing the possibility himself. The next morning it was back to the drum. We sat in for the last time, and as the night sky paled, left the throbbing temple and headed over the long bare mound to the southeast. Nick was telling me all about it, but I wasn't interested. All this dead stuff seemed beside the point. There was a story the Buddha told about a drum, a great drum, that had not been properly looked after. Eventually, the drum had rotted, and only the pegs remained. The drum was unable to sound. This will happen to the Dhamma, the Buddha had warned, if the Sangha does not keep the teachings in the suttas well learned. These teachings and the Vinaya were his bequest. Leaving Vaishali for the last time, the enlightened one had turned and given it a long, fond look. His final blessing. Striding across that mound in the grey dawn, I couldn't bring myself to do the same. Better to keep going and stay with the walking. And how does a bhikkhu live as a refuge unto himself? Here, Ananda, a bhikkhu abides, contemplating the body as body, earnestly, clearly aware, mindful, and having put away all hankering and fretting for the world. And likewise, with regard to feelings, mind, and mind objects. <laughs>